So having teenagers in my home, I'm constantly reminded of how out of touch I am, how old I am, what a relic I am. And one of the ways in which I am consistently reminded of this is the way in which words change over time, right? The words that you use to describe things as being cool when you were growing up, maybe you used the word groovy, uh, not as popular anymore. Um, and they have new words. And uh, I'm kind of in a lose-lose situation with my daughters because when I don't know the new words, they laugh at me and they just look at me like I'm some ancient man who's living in a different planet. But then when I do try to use their words, it's 10 times worse. It's, it's, the laughter is less, uh, the, last, the laughter's a little meaner. I'll say it that way. And there's a little cringing and there's like, dad, please, never in public. What you just did in this house, never do that in public. There's this word that's being used now. It's actually been used probably for a decade now, and it's the word goat. And I know you're thinking of an animal, but actually the goat is a term that's used. It's an acronym that stands for the greatest of all time. Did you know that? Goat, the greatest of all time. And last year, Meryl Streep, this older iconic actress, was in a film with some younger actors, Jonah Hill and Jennifer Lawrence. And as they were promoting their film, they were doing the press junkets and they were being interviewed about what was it like for an older actress to work with these young up-and-coming actors. And, and they asked um, Meryl Streep, you know, what, what, were they intimidated by you? Was it hard to get comfortable with each other? And she kind of said, well, yeah, I mean, at first there's an age gap and they were a little nervous around me. But then she said, but you know, Jonah, Jonah Hill is now so comfortable with me that for some reason he's been calling me a goat all week. And she literally thought that he was calling her like the animal goat and he's trying to pay her this compliment. He's saying, oh, Meryl Streep, she's the goat, which means she's the greatest of all time. In Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross, he talks about greatness. And he wants his disciples to understand that in the kingdom of God, greatness is very different than it is in the kingdom of this world. And, you know, we see him headed towards the cross in Matthew, and his focus is who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who's the goat? In Matthew chapter 18, um, verses 1 through 4, he gives them a teaching where he talks about how if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you have to come as a child. Be humble like a child to enter the kingdom of God. And children in this time in society, in this culture, they had no standing. They had no voice. They were to be seen but never heard. In fact, in the next chapter, parents try to bring their children to Jesus so that he could bless them. And Jesus' own disciples rebuked the parents saying, Jesus is way too great and important to be bothered by your children. But Jesus says, no, let the children come to me. Then later in that chapter, there's an encounter with a man called the rich young ruler. And in that story, we learn that greatness in the kingdom of God is not measured by the things that this world values. This guy had everything. So he was rich, young ruler. Rich, he had wealth. Young, he had vitality and his future in front of him. And ruler, he had power. And yet he was outside of the kingdom of God. Greatness is not measured by those things. And then in Matthew 20, the beginning of this chapter that we're about to jump into, he tells a story about some workers in the field who are hired throughout the day to come work. And at the end of the day, when the master of the field goes to pay them for their, their wages for their work, he pays them all the same, which is what they all agreed to. But the people who started at six in the morning looked at the people who started at four in the afternoon and said, hold on, why are they getting exactly what I get? And Jesus was teaching us even... Your amount of time 
in the kingdom of God does not make you greater than someone who's brand new to the kingdom of God. Greatness is measured differently. The first will be last and the last will be first. And that brings us to our text this morning in Matthew 20. And this is like the climactic moment of Jesus' teaching on greatness. And it starts with a story. So let's read it. Matthew 20, verse 20 says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, now the mother's name is Salome, and her sons were James and John, disciples of Jesus. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, to Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, so showing respect to Jesus, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, well, say that these two sons of mine, James and John, are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So he's saying, Jesus, when you establish your kingdom here on earth, and of course they were envisioning an earthly uh, kingdom, let my sons, James and John, let one of them sit on your right, one of them sit on your left, these positions of honor. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, now here's the sons answering, we are able. Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, the other 10 disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, and here's Jesus' teaching, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Because even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Anytime we go to a scripture passage, the first question we should ask as we begin to study it is this. What does this passage reveal about the person of God, the character of God, the nature of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? And so when we look at this passage, it would be easy to immediately dive into, well, what does it say about us, which it has a lot to say about us. But we got to start by saying, what does it say about God? And once we know what it says about God, then we'll realize it says some pretty important things about us too. And there's two things we're going to learn about Jesus in this passage. And the first thing is this, is that Jesus came to be a suffering servant, a suffering servant. And so we see this sort of structure to the story. The mother brings her request. Jesus responds to the request. Then the disciples, the other 10, they respond to the request. And then Jesus responds to the disciples' response. So there's really four scenes here, and we're going to walk through them. The first thing we see is the mother's request. Now, who is this woman? Salome is the mother of James and John. But more than that, she is most likely the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we learn this from John's gospel, John 19, 25, where she is named as the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So here's what it means. James and John are not just Jesus' disciples. They're his cousins. She's coming as Jesus' aunt. Now, in Mark's account, Salome isn't even mentioned. The Gospel of Mark tells this same story. But in Mark's account, it's James and John who come and ask Jesus, will you let us sit at your right and your left when you enter into your kingdom? So what's happening? Is this one of those contradictions that disproves the Bible and shows its inconsistencies? No, these are two different remembrances of the same event where Salome was most definitely involved, but her level of involvement is a little bit obscure. So did she make the ask? It seems like she did. But who was actually behind the question? 
And we know that James and John were behind the question because when Jesus answers in the Greek, when he says you, he says you all. He's speaking to a plural group of people. So his answer is not to a singular person like it would have been if the answer was to Salome alone. The answer was to multiple people. So we know that Jesus, even though the mother, maybe, maybe the, the brothers are like, you do it, you ask. You know, maybe they're like, this isn't going to look good for us. So you ask, you're the aunt, you're the elder, you're older than Jesus. Maybe he'll listen to you. Maybe something like that happened. We don't know for sure. But Jesus knew who really was asking the question. It was James and John. And so Jesus comes to James and John and he answers them. Now, what they're asking for is prominence in the kingdom. And in the, in the previous chapter, in Matthew 19, Jesus, uh, Peter actually says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get in return? That's Matthew 19, 27. And what Jesus says in verse 28 explains why James and John asked this question in Matthew 20. Jesus says in verse 28, truly I say to you in the new world, speaking of his kingdom, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, speaking to his disciples, will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus just said this. You're going to sit on thrones someday. And that's why this request makes sense. They're like, well, if we're all going to sit on thrones, maybe we can sit on the best two thrones. I mean, James and John were already in the inner circle, right? There were 12 apostles, but Peter, James, and John seemed to be in the inner three with Jesus. And Peter was always messing up. So James and John were probably like, surely we're number one and we're number two, and Peter's number three. Plus, in a familial, familial-focused culture, they're like, we're actually family. Peter's not family. We're family. And maybe they thought they were asking for what was theirs anyway. And so they make this request, can we sit at your right and your left hand? In a way, it makes sense, but there's a whole other way in which it makes no sense. And the reason it makes no sense is because of what Jesus literally said right before this story. Verses 17, 18, and 19. Look at what Jesus says right before James and John come with the request. It says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. So this is just the 12. So Salome might not even have heard this, but James and John did. He takes the 12 aside and he says to them, verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. These are the religious Jewish leaders. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles, who were the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Only the Romans could crucify. So it was the Romans who would do this, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, anyone who says Jesus didn't know what was coming didn't read this passage. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He laid his life down. His life was not taken from him. And this is actually the third time in Matthew that Jesus predicts his own death. But this one had the most level of detail. In none of his previous predictions did he mention the role of the Gentiles. Or did he mention the form of execution, that he would be crucified. And those two actually had to go together because the Jewish people could not crucify. Only the Romans could crucify. So Jesus, now think about this. Jesus just gets done prophesying about his own suffering and death. And in the very next story, James and John are like, hey, can we sit on your right and your left? You know what's weird is that, when, or not weird, but you know what's strange is that when Jesus was raised, so to speak, to his glory, his moment of glory, which was the moment of the cross, there were people on his right and his left. But it wasn't James and it wasn't John, and they certainly wouldn't have wanted to be on his right and his left as he hung on that cross. And that's why Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. I wonder, when we think about Jesus' response to the, to the request, I wonder how many times 
Jesus lovingly looks at us and says that. You don't know what you're asking. When, we ask, when, we're, when we're sure we know what's best for us, when we come with our long list of things, and it's good to come with our long list of things, and we should cast our cares upon God, and we should bring our petitions to him. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wonder if every now and then he's like, you don't know what you're asking for. Learning to trust that God knows. And then he asks James and John this question. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And that question brings us right back to what Jesus just predicted about his own death. Because the cup for Jesus, it represented his suffering that he would drink the cup of suffering. And James and John say, yes, we're able. Whatever's coming your way, we will endure also. And Jesus' answer is interesting because Jesus says back to them, yeah, you're right. You will drink the cup. Jesus knew that James would be the first of the 12 to be martyred. In, in, in Acts chapter 12, James is beheaded by Herod. He's the first of the 12. This is Jesus' cousin. So when, in that moment when James looks at Jesus and says, yes, I can drink the cup, I wonder if Jesus in his heart thought into the future and knew, James, you will drink the cup. You'll be the first of the 12 to drink the cup. The day that James was beheaded was the same day that Peter was set free by an angel and the church was praying for both of them. What do we do with that? That's the mystery of God's will and purposes. James did drink the cup. John also would drink the cup. Now, John was different. John was the one apostle who we're not sure if he actually was martyred, but he was exiled. He drank the cup of exile, being sent as an old man to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. And what we learn here in Jesus' words to us is this. It's important for us to understand this, that servants of Jesus will always drink the cup of suffering. To serve Jesus and to follow Jesus, although all the ultimate victory is found in Jesus, the path we take will involve suffering. To share in Christ's glory is to participate in his suffering. We cannot have his glory without participating in his suffering. Paul makes this so clear in his teachings. And how do we suffer well? Well, when we suffer, we look back at the cross and we see Jesus suffering something that we can never possibly understand. And when we're suffering and we're struck with the questions, why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? If we look back at the cross and we believe what Jesus did for us on the cross, the will of the Father to crush the Son for the forgiveness of our sins, then whatever the reason is why we're suffering, if we will look at the cross, we'll know that the one answer that it must not be is that he doesn't love us and he doesn't care about us and that he doesn't know what it's like to suffer. So we look back at the cross when we suffer. We look inside of ourselves when we suffer, and we trust that the Holy Spirit is doing a work. We, I read it this morning from Romans 5. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. If you look back at your life, you'll see that the seasons in which you grew the most, you suffered. We do not grow when we're comfortable. We grow when we're struggling. And then also we look forward to heaven with the hope that one day God will make all things right. See, servants of Jesus will always drink the cup of suffering, but James and John, they could never drink the cup that Jesus drank. In Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus two times asked to the Father if this cup can pass. I love the humanity of Jesus in the garden because I've asked that sometimes. God, if there's a different way to move forward, if my story and my family's story and our church's story doesn't have to involve dr drinking this cup of suffering and sorrow, then let's do it. Let's find another way. Jesus' heart twice, let the cup pass me by. 
The cup here represents the punishment for our sin, the wrath of God that should be poured out on the sins of humankind. And Jesus went to the cross where he drank the cup of God's wrath for his people. And Jesus, looking lovingly into James and John's eyes, knows, you'll drink the cup, but you won't drink that cup. I will have to drink that cup for you. We see the disciples hear about this, the other 10, and it says that they were indignant. Now, that doesn't mean that this this is not holy humility, (laughs) This is not righteous anger. This is jealousy. This is, this is a, why didn't I think to ask that first? This is a, um, how dare you use your mom? Look at your beautiful, you know, wonderful mom. How dare you prop her up and send her out to ask Jesus? How dare you use your family connections to try and get your, weasel your way in? Don't you already have enough inside access? You're already with Jesus all the time. How dare you? This indignation, it's not a concern that a friend has for someone that they love. This is anger and bitterness and contempt and, and frustration and jealousy because the things that they see in James and John's heart in this moment exist in their hearts too. And they want exactly what James and John had the courage or the foolishness to ask for. And as I was thinking about this this week, I thought to myself, boy, what if it's true that what bothers us the most in other people is actually in us? What if it's true that what bothers me the most about other people is actually a big issue for me and I just can't see it? I'm trying to talk to them about the speck in their eye and there's a log in my eye. I realize that prideful people bother me because I'm a prideful person. I realize that people who don't treat people well bother me because I I want to be treated well. We have to pay attention to our hearts in these moments when we feel like we have indignation in our hearts towards other people. Make sure that the Spirit's not just using that moment to point at something in our lives. Say, this is an issue for you as well. And then lastly, we see Jesus' response to their response. Jesus says, he, he gathers them all together, not just James and John, which means this was an issue for the 12, that Jesus knew what was in the hearts of the other 10, said, come on, guys, let's go. Lesson time. And Jesus' response is clear, it's concise, and it's corrective. He gets right to the point, he pulls no punches, and he uses startling language. So let's, let's just think about this. He says to them, hey, Gentile rulers, which Gentiles represent the Romans or pagans, non-God-fearing people, the way that Gentiles use their power, they use it like a weapon. The way they use their authority is they wield it over other people. They got a title in front of their name and they want everybody to know. They got position and influence and they're going to use it to get their way. They have any sort of access to to power and to influence, they're going to use it to strengthen themselves. Gentiles do this because they view greatness as a throne to grasp and not a cup to drink. But in the kingdom of God, greatness is not about grasping a throne. It's about the willingness to drink the cup, to suffer like Jesus suffered. He says, you should see greatness differently than the people of this world. And because you see greatness differently, you should use your leadership differently. The way of the cup is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is humble servanthood. And Jesus uses two words here in the Greek, servant and slave. And they're not the same word. They mean two different things. The word servant, the word diakonos, is someone who would take care of household duties, especially the provision of food. They would stop doing things for themselves long enough to do things for others. That's what it meant to be a servant. I've heard Pastor Bill Kirk talk about this word diakonos, and it shows up again in Matthew 23. He describes a servant this way, as someone who advances others at the expense of themselves, cares less who gets the credit, doesn't need to be thanked for their service, and takes up their cross without complaint. That's what a servant is. Advances others at the expense of themselves. 
cares less who gets the credit, doesn't need to be thanked for their service, and takes up their cross without complaint. And Jesus says, says the servant is the greatest. Who's the goat? The greatest. It's those who are willing to serve. And then he ups the ante. There's a progression here. He says the first will be the slave. Now, the slave is a Greek word, doulos. And this is a, this is a lower standing in society. A slave was bound to obey their master under the control of others. Slaves in this time could eventually work their way out, almost more like an indentured servant, but they were below the diakonos who would take care of household responsibilities. These were, I want you to hear this, servant and slave, diakonos and doulos, these were the two lowest positions in Jewish society, but Jesus shocks the disciples when he says they're the greatest and they're the first. What Jesus is doing here is he's, challenging the hearts of people, and he's challenging our heart this morning with this question or these questions. Why do you want to matter? Why do you need to be seen? Why do you want to be important? Why do you want to lead? Why do you have influence? Why do you work so hard for a platform? Why do you want to be seen as great? Jesus is challenging the ambition in our hearts that measures greatness in ways they're counter to the kingdom of God. Because our ambition when we serve God, the only ambition we should have in serving God is the opportunity, listen, to serve others. To be a slave to Jesus is to be a servant to all. And Jesus is not very far from a moment where he will get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of his disciples. He will take the lowest servant position imaginable in society. The master, the rabbi, the teacher will serve men who within hours will betray him, deny him, and abandon him. And yet he serves despite his position, despite his pain, he serves. Jesus is calling us to serve. Now, in our leadership, and there's lots of leaders in our church, leadership, one of the simplest definitions of leadership is influence. So if you have influence anywhere, you have leadership responsibilities. But as I thought about our church family, there's a lot of people in official positions of leadership. There's other pastors and denominational leaders in our church, CEOs, COOs, CFOs, administrators, directors, managers, Many people in education, college professors, high school teachers, elementary, middle school, healthcare workers, there's doctors and nurses and pharmacists. There are people in our church who are small business owners, entrepreneurs who are coaches, who, are, who give their lives to the military, to law enforcement, to government work, to sales, to food services, and they're leading in many different ways. And what if the people of God made such an impact on our community that every opportunity we have to lead in our workplace, everywhere that the Lord gives us influence, we lead by serving? We lead not to be seen, we lead to serve. We lay our lives down so that others might be seen, that others might benefit. And we don't live for ourselves, we live for the glory of God and for the good of others. And while it's easy to make this passage just about those who have titles and positions and leadership and power, and even to critique those in authority above us, please don't miss the point. This is for everyone. Jesus is speaking to all of us. Because all of us have a call to lay down our lives and serve one another. You know, Probably the hardest place to do this with consistency is in our own homes. But this starts in our homes, husbands and wives. What does it look like to lead and serve one another? To lay down your life to strengthen and encourage and serve one? How does it look as moms and dads or grandparents or aunts and uncles to serve the next generation? What will it look like for us to model for them what it means to be great in the kingdom of God is to be the servant and the slave of Jesus? 
Think about the definition of diakonos that I read earlier that Pastor Bill shared. Envision yourself in your own home right now and ask yourself, am I this in my home? Someone who advances others at the expense of themselves. Cares less who gets the credit. Doesn't matter if I took the trash out or not. (laughs) Doesn't need to be thanked for their service. Doesn't need to be applauded for everything they do around their home or every kind word they say to their family members. It takes up their cross without complaint. The battleground for most of this stuff is in our homes. It's the people that are closest to us that we have the hardest time loving and serving and laying our lives down. I want to just make a quick announcement that starting in April, we're bringing back our marriage mornings this year. So the first Saturday morning of every month, April, May, and June, from 9 to 10, we're having marriage mornings here. And there's, ch- there's child care provided, nursery, children care is available. You're going to sign up for this online. This is one hour for the next three months, starting with Saturday, April 1st, uh, to invest into your marriage. In the first service, I said, if you're married and you're wondering, is this for me? The answer is yes. <laughs> if you're married, you need this. Uh, If you're engaged to be married, you need this. If you're in a relationship that's headed towards marriage, you need this. If you're single and you think you're going to get married someday, you need this. This is for all of us. We're going to take an hour to pour into marriages because there's nothing more that the enemy of our souls would love to do than tear our homes and our marriages apart. And as a church, we're providing these environments so that we can speak truth and life and encouragement and hope into your marriages because it's in that context that this idea of being a servant is really tested. Because if we're honest, we get tired of serving them over and over, day after day, week after week, without acknowledgement, without uh, reward, and yet we're called to serve. Positions of leadership in God's kingdom belong to those who have been so transformed by the grace of God that they're willing to lead by serving others rather than by being served. Now, I'm wrapping up, and I could finish the message right here and just say, well, that's the point. Jesus is a uh, suffering servant. Be like him. But that's not where the story ends, and that's not where the gospel ends. The gospel is not be like Jesus. The gospel is look what Jesus did for us. And so let's look what Jesus did for us. I'm going to ask Pastor Anthony and Jared to come forward at this time. Jesus was not just the suffering servant, but last thing this morning, he was the sacrificial substitute. Look at verse 28. The last verse in this passage says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. And what I want us to do here is look just at two words, the word ransom and the word for. And the word ransom in the Greek is the word litron or lutron, and it simply means payment. Uh, Ransom was the price that was paid for the release of slaves. If somebody was enslaved and there was a debt that they owed that they could not pay, the way that somebody would set them free from their enslavement is to come along and say, I will pay the ransom, I'll pay the price for them. And when Jesus said, I came to be a ransom, what he's saying is, I came to pay a price for those who are enslaved to sin, enslaved and lost in, in the darkness of their own hearts. Jesus said, I will be the ransom. There was a price that needed to be paid for our freedom, and no other price would do but the precious blood of the perfect Son of God. Acts 28, 28, it says that Jesus purchased the church with his very blood. The ransom for you was the blood of the Son of God, the righteous one. Ransom. But there's another word here, for. Ransom for many. And that word for is the Greek word anti, which actually means substitution. He was the ransom, not just for us, but he was the ransom in place of us, in our place. What this means is that 
the ultimate act of service that you and I need had to be done for us. It couldn't be done by us. We couldn't pay this ransom. We couldn't save ourselves. And so Jesus left heaven to come to earth in our place to serve us. And through his death, Jesus paid the price to set you free. And listen, in setting us free, it doesn't mean, oh, I got no more master. I'm just going to live my life however I want. No, Jesus set us free. And by setting us free and paying the ransom, we as the ransomed belong to the one who paid the price for us. We have a new master, but this is not a master who enslaves us to do things that will destroy us and corrupt us and make us less ourselves and less like God whose image we were created in. Jesus is the master who, as we are conformed to his image, we become more who we were created to be, bearing the image of God well. So Jesus serves us not by giving us what we always want, but by giving us what we always need. What we need is an example. We have one in Jesus. What we need is motivation, and we have it in Jesus. But what we really needed was a substitute, someone who would do it in our place, live the life we couldn't live, die the death we should have died, the ransom for many. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray together this morning.